Greetings, Rays community. Brent coming in live from Charleston, South Carolina, as my family and I continue our RV voyage around America. I am thrilled to welcome Maria Watson, who is the Vice President for Advancement at Pomona College and an avid motorcycle enthusiast. Welcome, Maria. Thank you so much. Great to be joining you. Great to be um, part of the conversation. And the uh, the only other thing that I love doing is is being on the bike. So happy to talk about that as well. Absolutely. Um, so one of the ways we've been getting to know our guests, we'll definitely talk about your uh, career and your um, expansive experience across different nonprofit sectors, which I look forward to discussing. But I actually love knowing about um, my guests own college paths, because so often that's our first exposure to the world of advancement, even if we don't know that's what it's called when we're in high school. And so I'd love to know about the Maria who was in New York, uh, considering different uh, college options and ultimately made your way out to Ann Arbor to the University of Michigan. What what led you there? Yeah, it's a great question. And, I, and I'm I'm so it was it was a journey. I was a I was a music major and I found the path to the University of Michigan through music and through playing the clarinet. And and I found the path through the University of Michigan through the Interlochen um, uh, National Music Camp. And so I was out there for two summers in high school. And um, I actually went to, I, I was born in New York, but then was in high school in South Florida. Uh, my dad was an IBMer and got relocated down there. Um, so middle school and high school was in South Florida. And so it was through the national, through Interlochen that I was introduced to, to Michigan. And it was, I, I was really fortunate to have um, scholarship offers from University of Miami and Michigan uh, to play the clarinet. And I wanted to have the experience of the big school and the more of a conservatory um, uh, training. And so that's where I ultimately ended up at, at, at Michigan. And, and, well, I, and was- I smiled, when you, I smiled when you said Interlochen because uh, I had a, a friend who attended Interlochen for high school and also you're very musical as you might imagine. And as I was starting Evertrue, literally, I mean, she was a business school classmate. I was finishing up my MBA at Harvard and I had this PowerPoint and a concept and I was just showing it to any of my friends. And I remember showing it to Christina and she immediately made an introduction to uh, Interlochen. And so one of my first even like exploratory pitches for Evertrue was with Interlochen, which, you know, I'll admit I wasn't familiar uh, with, uh, but as I went to learn about the school and the camp, I mean, what an amazing place. I'd love you just to share a little bit more about that camp experience and for those who aren't familiar with Interlochen, why it's so special. Absolutely. I mean, for those who don't know, Interlochen is in Traverse City, Michigan. So it's in the in the mitt and it's on the, the, the west side, of the, of the west coast of, of Michigan on the mitt. And it is very similar to a Tanglewood or an Aspen in terms of the, 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 the students um, and the experience. And it both has a summer music camp as well as a year round academy. Uh, and the summer music camp is a combination of an all state for 
residents of the state of Michigan, and that runs from elementary school all the way through high school. And then they have a national music camp that is for all disciplines, uh, include all art disciplines. So music, dance, theater, creative writing, and it's a, they're coming up on their 100th anniversary. And it's a really, really special, magical place um, that for, for anyone who has an artistic um, heart and spirit uh, to, to be at that age and to, to be in that community really uh, allows you to find a path through and, and a community of, of kindred spirits. And that's certainly what I found when I was at Interlochen in high school. And so you went to the University of Michigan, that connection with Interlochen, your skill and passion for the clarinet led you there. Um, what were the highlights of your college experience, whether it involved music or more broadly? So some of the highlights, I was um, certainly the friendships and the relationships and the, and, the, and the community and lifelong friendships. And I think that's what we many of us can say from our college experience. Um, and some of the, those friendships have actually led to meeting my husband, you know, 20 years later. Um, there, there is a terrific composer, Derek Vermel, who found who is now music director of the American Composers Orchestra at, at Carnegie, um, who was childhood friends of my now husband who introduced us in our in our 30s. So, you know, I have that to be grateful for to the University of Michigan. Um, but it was also it, the, some mentors. I have, um, there's a, a terrific um, now retired from University of Michigan, but still performing conductor H. Robert Reynolds, who I uh, was my conductor, who is a, a dear friend and mentor, who I was also a work study student. So I was uh, managing the the programs and the ensembles for for Professor Reynolds, and that was one of my first fundraising jobs. Was um, the band o rama concert at the at the University of Michigan, which is a really fun program where you are um, it's a it's in in Ann Arbor is the Hill Auditorium. It's a beautiful auditorium and you have um, a, a concert of the, the 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 concert programs as well as the marching band and you're bringing in um, uh, um, high school students and, and middle school students from the whole area. And it's really an introduction to, to the U of M music program. And it's a fundraiser for uh, commissioning new uh, composers for the, for the band program. So it's a, it's a really beautiful flywheel cycle. I'm gonna go out on a limb and say that uh, while Zoom and technology have allowed us to be more efficient and scale certain activities, I bet the bandorama is a lot better in person. <laughs> I'm sure it is. Hundred <laughs> percent, yeah, and especially and, auditorium. <laughs> and so, like everyone who has longtime aspirations to lead philanthropic fundraising organizations, you pursued the clarinet, uh, and we're, uh, I'm sure, imagining that that's exactly where this would would, would all lead. I had no idea where where it would all lead, uh, and I I actually remember one of the conductors at Michigan pulling me aside and suggesting that arts management would be the path, and 
it had never, I, I had no idea what arts management was and, uh, and had never considered it, but I then came out of school, start, had an internship with, in DC with the Congressional Arts Caucus, was working at night uh, with the National Symphony Orchestra to kind of at telemarketing to pay the, pay the bills while I was doing the, doing the internship. And it, it led to uh, an arts, in the early part of my career, an, an arts management path, but it, I, ne I never imagined that it would be fundraising. Well, tell me more about that because we oft, we've had a lot of guests who are now your peers and leaders in the higher education fundraising sector. And we often refer to the phonathon as the gateway drug to advancement leadership, or at least it used to be. You worked for a telethon for the National Symphony Orchestra. I imagine that's a bit of a cousin to the phonathon. I mean, what are the differences when you think about that constituency, that script, that experience relative to the one that we know better here in the education world? They're they're first cousins. They're exactly this the, the same. Um, you're you're you are working with the the subscribers, the renewals, the lapsed, the single ticket buyers. So it's the, the same level of frequency uh, that you would you would see in in our in our uh, our higher ed community. And uh, you still do you still call them live bunts and side bunts, or did they have a different name in that world? Uh, it was it was lapsed and um, and and renewals. So you didn't have the live bunts and the side bunts. Um, but I, I think what I found so interesting about that that experience was connecting with people who had the passion for the mission. So that's the same same similarity of what 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 we're um, building in the relationships. And also, it taught me around the. The, the frequency of numbers. So in order to move through calls, in order to reach the sales, to move through the no's in order to reach the yeses, to, to understand the barriers of no's to, to, reach, to reach the yeses and, and not to be um, diminished by the no's to, to reach the yeses. And, and that's something that I've fallen back on over and over again in my career. Love it. And I think the reason, I mean, it's um, operating in that uh, intense environment where you have the good, the bad, the ugly, everything in between. Um, do you have any experiences that you recall from that time that stood out as being like really positive or on the other hand, some really tough nose that maybe helped uh, thicken your skin as you were early in part of your career? Well, I think I think the toughest nose, and I, and it's hard to frankly, it's hard to remember that far back. But it's the toughest nose were the ones where I spent so much time, and what I realized was there there was an interest there, and there was a connection, but at the end of the day, it was either a combination of the of the timing for them. Or they may, there may have just been other reasons why, personal reasons why they were spending that amount of time with me on the, on the phone. And I, I had spent all that time with them and couldn't, couldn't get to the close and couldn't get to the, 
get to the sale. Um, th those those were those were hard, really powerful lessons um, and lessons that 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 you that you have to learn. Um, you know the the highs, and we all remember the highs. But is the lesson that, is the lesson that if you had known what you know now back then, you could have got to the yes, or you would have maybe disqualified them sooner as opposed to land in the middle, which is a lot of time and zero results. I would have, dis I would have disqualified them sooner. That, that was the big lesson. How? How would you have done that, Maria? I, uh, you know, it, I would have, well, I would have had clearer questions and, you know, this is going back now, let's see, 25, 30 years, um, but think, you know, thinking more uh, more frequent uh, examples, I would, I would have asked clearer questions around what their intentions were. I think I was, I was at that moment in time, I was focused on building the relationship and building the um, building the connection rather than focusing on where their interests were with the for, for the at that moment the National Symphony Orchestra or for the season at hand. So it, it, I was spending more time on the relationship building. Um, and, and that's a very highly transactional moment, um, rather than having clarity around their intentions of this, their interest in the season, their interest in specific concerts, their their interest um, in uh, the, the 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 calendar. You know, really driving to the to the the, the transaction and and having um, getting to the to the ask quickly. Yeah. So you know, which is very different than the major. It's difference. it's it's. Yeah. Yeah, no, it's such a it's such a balance because we talk about this as a relationship business all the time. Um, but then there is that balance of when does it make sense for it to be transactional? When is it truly a relationship business? And then I think a whole bunch of room in between. Uh, that's the gray area that we're spending a lot of time thinking about as well. Yeah, uh, but ultimately, you had a good enough experience where it led you to decide uh, I will maybe play the clarinet nights and weekends, but this is going to be my day job. So what was that realization like? And just tell me about some of those early um, experiences you had at the intersection of philanthropy, music, the arts, etc. Well, truth be told, the, the, the realization of setting the clarinet aside was when I was working at Lincoln Center for about a decade. And David Schifrin, who's arguably one of the, the best clarinetists um, performing, was rehearsing on the other side of my office door. And then I would pick up my clarinet and try and have the same sound as, as, as David's. <laughs> and then I said, let's 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 put this clarinet down and enjoy david's outstanding recordings particularly of mozart um i it, it was i spent i spent the first decade in marketing and pr in at the chamber music society of lincoln center and then with the new world symphony and then came back to new york uh, which is down in miami beach which was founded by michael tilson thomas which is an outstanding orchestra if you're not familiar with it and um, and then came back to New York and was working with us with a smaller regional orchestra 
and was in marketing and we were recruiting for the for the head of fundraising and um the president at the time we were we were talking through and we were just having a difficult time um, identifying the candidate and i flippantly said why don't i do it and then you can recruit in the the the, the marketing director not realizing that she might actually take me up on it and and she did and we and she was a terrific mentor, uh, Kathy Cahill, and she um, also was an outstanding fundraiser. And it was at a moment of time of, of real uh, creativity with the with the Brooklyn Philharmonic as we were reimagining a program at BAM. And uh, and it was a team of five in fundraising, and it was not the most traditional way to be introduced into, into the fundraising path, but I jumped right in as a, as a director of development, managing a team for a, a mid-sized um, arts organization with a really outstanding mentor, which I'm, I'm very grateful for. And candidly, if I were to look at your kind of resume up to that point, I probably wouldn't have predicted where you are now. <laughs> Um, you, you were obviously on a path, and, and I understand there was an opportunity to explore the education sector and be in New York, um, but I'd love to know more because obviously you're so, you know, you're very passionate. Your whole life had been about music um, and the arts, and when did you start to even consider uh, the broader uh, philanthropic space and education specifically? Yeah, that these were these were tough decisions, and for anyone who has deep passions in specific areas, these the, there's a lot of soul searching that goes into the taking one uh, one branch off the path, and and these were these were tough decisions for me because I I so deeply and continue to deeply love classical music and um, and the arts, and and then it became a question of what's the next step in my career? What's the next step in having impact? Because I was so enjoying fundraising and, and, and wanting to give back and really seeing the connection between the mission and resourcing the mission and, and, and how to scale that up. And you know, I, I was the benefit of scholarships in, in, in higher ed. It, it, it meant a great deal to, to me. I, you know, I, I'm a, a my family, you know, there's five children, two of us have gone to college, three have not. I've, I've seen the difference between the power of higher education and, and I wanted to give back. And so the next step in that journey was at Fordham University. And it was a really natural path for me um, because it was with a public radio station, WFUV, which is extraordinary. It's a AAA station in New York. And, um, and it was a bridge between music and higher ed. While it wasn't classical music, it was music. And so I was able to na navigate um, both, both of those communities and, and a really exciting inflection point for WFUV and, and for Fordham. Um, and so that, that's, that started the path uh, with higher ed and kind of a really interesting journey uh, onward. I want to talk about the journey, but maybe at this point, I will ask you, what is the one thing that education fundraisers could learn from the arts fundraising world and vice versa? What's one thing that the arts fundraising world could take away from higher education? It's such a great question. I, I think that 
higher ed, um, I'm going to offer two things that higher ed uh, can learn from, from the arts. One is the arts has the power because they're small, oftentimes smaller institutions, they have the power of seeing how more clearly how everything interlocks and seeing the synergy of how everything interlocks. And, for, and that's much more difficult to see holistically in higher ed and to think collaboratively in higher ed and, and how to, to find that synergy in, in higher ed. So I, I think that's, that is, is, is one, in one, one piece of it. Um, and the arts organizations oftentimes do not have this, the, the same resources that many, not all, but many higher ed institutions have. And so arts organizations are driven with a, 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 an entrepreneurial drive that sometimes you don't, and are, are more, that embrace more risk at, in their experimentation that you often don't find in higher ed. And so I, I think those are two qualities that, that higher ed could um, continue to embrace more. You know, the flip side of it is in arts organization and particularly in fundraising, uh, there is a discipline to, to fundraising there, and successful programs. There, there is a discipline to our, our management and our, and, and, the, and our data and our metrics and our, and our success. And, and that's where arts fundraising um, and, and many other organizations, different industries um, that are fundraising can re really continue to, to see best in class and next in class with, with, within higher education. Love it. Well said. And then uh, you ended up joining one of the one of the most successful philanthropic enterprises in certainly in higher ed, if not the world, uh, at the University of Southern California in New York. Was that a hard decision, easy decision? Um, and just tell me about that journey at USC, which was obviously a very exciting, successful time. So it was, you know, full disclosure, the vice president at Fordham University, Al Cecchio, was recruited to USC to be the senior vice president. So when Al, who is an outstanding mentor and friend, was recruited to, to SC, he uh, re recruited me to initially open the New York office and the Northeast operation for the, the launch of the, of the SC campaign. Which was, it was also, which was what, what year was that, Maria? Uh, so that was 2010. So you're kind of heart of the financial crisis in New York, opening up a fundraising office, uh, doing remote work before it was cool, basically. <laughs> Yeah. What could be hard about that? <laughs> and I, I think I, I think I was also reflecting upon. So we're in a decentralized university, <laughs> and it and it, and where we I'm opening a central office in New York, and so so what's going to be hard about that? <laughs> um, it was, and, you know, and it was a very unusual model uh, for a campaign because, you know, typically you, you want to raise 40, 50% and then in the quiet phase and then come out and launch uh, on, the, on the public phase. 
we we can, it, at that moment in time at SC, they came out and launched with um, a, about a billion in on a six billion dollar campaign. So you know, real, really at it at the at the height of the of the crisis. So it was a very unusual model, and then ultimately um, closed at seven point two. Um, it was it, it it was also a moment where I thought, can I move from a a, a specialist to a generalist? Can I move from a, a specialist in music to a generalist for the ent entire campus? Um, and it, it was it was a such a rewarding experience to be in New York, be be at that moment with the institution, but to be able to build the relationships across the, the 19 schools, to build the, build the relationships um, to, to uh, across the, the leadership at that, mo that moment in time, uh, and to build a new enterprise for an institution su such as SC in the Northeast, uh, which there was such, there's such a strong alumni base and a strong alumni program, but there had not been a developed fundraising or, or volunteer leadership program at that level. So to to be the, to have the to build the architecture of that in support of the broader campaign uh, was was a really interesting and exciting exciting time and then ultimately led to the path on onto campus. I think it's fair to say that sometimes it can feel challenging to be entrepreneurial in higher education because there is so much history and tradition and decades or hundreds of years um, of legacy to build upon. And so that can make change hard. I would imagine setting up that office had to be one of the more uniquely entrepreneurial aspects that one could do in, in higher education. And, and I guess when you reflect on the greatest experiences, the toughest challenges, what really stands out during that um, specific process? Yeah, it was um, such a great question. It it was some of the some of the challenges. You know, you probably can tell by my personality that I lean towards the opportunities and than, than focusing on the challenges. But you know, some some of the challenges were how to build with a team that is based in a regional office um, at, a dis at, a, at a distance, um, you know, coast to coast, um, how, how to not only build the relationships, but build the sense of the same culture of the campus in, 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 in the regional offices. So that you, that you are the strongest ambassadors and and also a neutral ambassador for the entire campus. So centralized office, decent, decentralized campus. That you that you are truly a a, a neutral representative for the our decentralized deans and and uh, and their communities in support of a, of the centralized office. It's a really interesting. Um, uh, navigation and yeah. Did you, did and, you feel and, like you were, I, I'm, I've been waiting to make an analogy. Did you go from being the clarinet player to conducting the orchestra? Was that what was happening? Well, I, um, or at I, least the New York I think, version of it. Yeah. 
Yeah, I think so. I mean, it, it was it, at least the New York version of it. Um, it, it was, um, I mean, there were, there, there, are, there are a lot of uh, leaders in, in, in the community. Um, it was, it, it was helping to, to connect the, the, the dots. In, in some ways it was more about being the composer of the music to help um, there we make go. the connection. Love yeah. it. Um, and I would never say it was the, the conductor. Yeah. What were some of the highlights, like best experiences where you felt like, wow, if we hadn't set up this effort in New York, this probably wouldn't have happened. This outcome, this relationship, this revenue. I mean, were there, you know, as you went through that experience and probably even to this day, I would imagine there are still gifts emerging that you could trace back to some of that work in 2010, 11, 12, et cetera. Uh, what are those highlights? Oh, there's so many. I, you know, I think, I think about, first you think about individuals and there is a, you know, a continued transformation in, in the, at, at the, at the university and in the leadership. And there are leaders that, that came from New York, that came from the New York area um, that are now really strong voices uh, on campus. And, and that's really exciting to, to see and more that are emerging, but to be a part of that process of de I develop, being, developing those relationships is, 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 is really meaningful. You know, another area, um, the the Shoah Foundation is a uh, home is housed at as at housed at USC. And for those who aren't familiar with the Shoah Foundation, it it was founded by Steven Spielberg uh, uh, following the the filming of uh, Schindler's List. And it's uh, you know originally started with the the recording of the um, testimonies of the survivors of um, the Holocaust, and and that and New York was a area, a market that um, the Shoah Foundation was, you know, strategically uh, looking to deepen their relationships with um, as 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 we're coming into the, the next period of growth and have have had a new executive director and a really outstanding leader who's still there, Stephen Smith. So to work closely with. Um, Stephen and the leadership of the, of the Shoah Foundation and, and the team as they as they were taking that that next step and, and have since expanded their permanent staff in the New York office as part of the Shoah Foundation was really deeply personally and professionally rewarding um, part of the of the journey that, that we were on. Can I just ask as you reflect on that and obviously you know, hard sometimes to draw generalizations, but there had been a debate pre-COVID around remote work and, um, you know, satellite offices. And obviously, you know, the Ivy Plus community maybe has the West Coast and the New York, you know, the New York office. But in general, fundraising in higher education has been deeply connected to the campus, even if the campus is not connected to where alumni live, work, and build their lives. And I do think we're at this moment right now where everybody's so excited to get back to work and get back to normal. Um, are we missing an opportunity to double down on the fact that we've now all 
love it or hate it, gotten more accustomed to remote work. The technology at our disposal today is radically different and better than what you had at your disposal in 2010. Why shouldn't we have USC or Fordham or Pomona fundraisers embedded in all of the top 5, 10, 15, 20 markets? Or maybe they can now be globally embedded instead of having to fly all over Asia once or twice a year. I mean, I don't think it's too early to get your take and you don't have to be too Pomona specific, but given your work building that office and seeing the impact of having folks on the ground all the time, not just flying in on the red eye, um, should we be doing more of that in this sector? It's a great question. And I, I think it's very powerful. You know, fundraising is local. All fundraising is local. And our alumni community, regardless of what institution we're involved in, oftentimes is either national or, or, or global. And to have authentic voices that can speak to a community and can speak to relationships and leaders in the community is powerful. And, and to be able to build those networks and relationships in communities is powerful. And, and, it, and it builds the momentum. You know, three or four times a year coming in and having those, those, those trips, those week-long trips doesn't have the same momentum as being on, on the ground, living and breathing in a, in a city, uh, whether it's, you know, any city, and it, particularly as dynamic a city as, as New York or the Bay Area or, or, or other cities. Um, you know, the, some of the challenges that you face is, you know, how, how do you keep that connection back to campus? How, how do you keep that, 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 sen that sense of community? Um, technology has made it a heck of a lot easier to do, to do, to do that and to, to build that, that bridge. Um, and with, with clear intention, you're able to create that, uh, that, that um, alignment of culture between between the teams. Um, but I, I, I think I think we're going to see a real disruption in not only our industry, but but, but so many as we, as we come post COVID, it, the, the normal is a, it will be a new normal. There's a very, very prolific venture capitalist in New York named Fred Wilson, and he has been a very vocal blogger and just thinker sharing his thoughts publicly for, for many years. And I followed him and he just published something this week saying that across his portfolio companies or out of all the companies he's invested in, they're now doing surveys to figure out what is the return to work? What are the office space requirements? It's one thing if you're Pomona College and you've got a physical presence and you need that to deliver um, education or if you're the University of Southern California, but if you're a tech startup that's essentially fully cloud oriented and you've been Zooming and Slacking and Microsoft Teaming, um, there's a lot of questions from investors right now. What is, what is the future of your real estate footprint? What does that mean for real estate spend across our portfolio? And I think his comment was that they expect it to at least be cut in half immediately uh, coming out of the pandemic. And so my question has been, you know, what if I did a, a survey of 100 advancement leaders and asked the same exact questions? Would the answer be, we're going to use 99% of the same real estate footprint that we used before the pandemic. And if that is the answer, and I suspect that it might be the answer, should it be that different than the way that the commercial world is adjusting to this post-COVID reality? So I'm not putting you on the spot, but it's just something that's 
very top of mind. And, um, you know, I, I would welcome your perspective if you have one. Yeah, absolutely. Well, it's something that we've been thinking a lot about at Pomona, and I'm sure every, every advanced, advancement leader is doing the same. You know, how do you maintain a sense of community on our campuses? And, and so, so part of the thinking around that is, you know, what's the required footprint for a sense of community? Um, you know, there's the obvious student-facing staff re responsibility. No question. Yep. And, and there's a certain element of an advancement footprint that is community facing that's on the campus. So, so you, know, you immediately think about events or uh, the alumni interface with the community or, or, or the parent potential parent interface with, with the community, alumni houses, what, what does that mean in the intersection of that? But I also think, you know, as a student worker myself, when I was at the University of Michigan, you know, having that, that student worker experience in person is a sense of community. So, you know, how do, how do you potentially reimagine that, that student worker uh, experience? But frankly, our fundraisers and, you know, a lot of our, a lot of our investment and our manpower in our shops are the, are the fundraisers. If they're doing their jobs, they shouldn't be in the offices, <laughs> frankly. Um, and so is it really a requirement for us to have the, the real estate investment for the, our, our, our fundraisers? And then the back office side, I think that's where the, the, the real question becomes in terms of our advancement services, our research, potentially even stewardship. You know, is that more, because that comes more into the tech space and is that yep. really a, a requirement on campus? Is there more flexibility, uh, remote work uh, flexibility for, 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 what? for the campus? And also the intersection of that with um, DEI, which I know is something you care a lot about. And we've been you know thinking uh, and doing a bunch of work at Evertrue as well. Uh, and frankly, if you are, limiting your talent pool to be people who can exclusively live in or move to relative high cost of living areas, are you inherently putting yourself at a disadvantage as it relates to um, being able to attract a broader talent pool that isn't as constrained by geography? So I think that's another part of the conversation as, as we hear more and more leaders that are you know, really focused on not just thinking about DEI, but doing it, um, what, what constraints are we putting on ourselves that are, again, connected to 20 square miles around campus? Absolutely. Absolutely. And, and especially when you look at the high cost urban centers that many of our Absolutely. universities are located in yeah. and what that cost of living is, and, and, and we're not keeping up with that cost of living with, with our salaries. Right. So let's bring your USC journey to a close. You raised seven billion dollars. Uh, not just you. There's a team effort there, but uh, raised seven billion dollars. Yeah, make a lot of uh, make a lot of positive impact. And then ultimately, um, I'd love to know more about what inspired you to decide um, to seek an ultimate sort of leadership position within uh, the education space. And just tell me a little bit about that process, what you learned along the way, and ultimately why you were excited about the opportunity at Pomona? Well, I, I, I after um, 
coming to LA as the Associate Vice President of Development at USC. So moving, moving from New York and then coming to, to LA and then managing New York and San Francisco. So the, the two regional uh, uh, markets and our major gifts team at, at SC and close, closing out the campaign and working closely with a, a number of our particular art schools. Um, it, it was it's such an extraordinary time of growth and and a really exciting time at, at, at SC. It it then became became a question for me of you know what what's the the next step of uh, for the for the career and and I was really excited to to look for an opportunity to to help lead a campaign and and what that would look like and for my family it was really it was very important to be in the LA area and. And it, it, you get to a certain point where you're really looking for the right institution. And, um, and so I found that in Pomona and the combination of our new, our new president, the combination of the, the, the academic excellence, but, but really the um, commitment that uh, Pomona has had over the last 20 years to, um, as you mentioned earlier, diversity, um, uh, our diverse talent pool, need blind admissions. Um, th this, we have been developing next practices in admissions and uh, we have st our student population is over 50% student of color, um, which is really uh, dynamic. And we're now doing a lot of work on in inclusion uh, for our, st our student population. That for me was, how can we come, how can we work with an alumni base that is now 20 years of, uh, uh, that's truly representative of our community? And how can we develop next practices that is truly representative and authentic for our community? Um, and, th and that's one of the reasons why I came to, came to Pomona. Um, Besides the outstanding team and and the and the the next campaign that's in front of us, you've referenced this a few times. So I have to ask, what's the difference between a best practice and a next practice today and tomorrow? Um, so that you know, I think the best the best practices are oftentimes what we 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 take for granted and what we we look to each other for. And the next practice is what we are developing for the future, and what we are are, are developing for for the for the next the next practice are the best practice of tomorrow. What's an example that maybe you're excited about right now, either at Pomona specifically or in the sector broadly, that you would say today this is a best practice, but I think tomorrow this might be the next practice. Well, I would say I, I would I would reverse it that today's the next practice and tomorrow it'll be the best practice. And I think that um, some some of the things that I'm that I'm thinking about is I'll give you some some this week data points that we're that we're working through. So a, a question was raised around. Um, So this is a problem that we're working through at Pomona. The last 20 years, like many, many of us, we have seen a decline in our alumni participation rate. I think we're all facing that. It's kind of like a national trend downwards. But Pomona, it's been, it's been a bit more dramatic. We've gone from 50% to 24% in the last 20 years. 
And in the last 20 years, we, we have, it, that also correlates with our uh, commitment to need blind admissions and a much more diverse alumni base. So there, there were questions around, is there a correlation that there, potentially we're seeing a more diverse population that is, give, that is giving less? Or is, the, is there a connection between financial aid and, um, and giving? So we were able to work with our institutional research and identify um, the, those students who had received financial aid in the last 20 years and connected it with their giving patterns. And we realized that, that in the last 20 years, 68% of those who had not received financial aid had given some gift of any amount to the college. In the last 20 years, wait for it, 68% of those who had received financial aid had given to the college. Wow. And the level of, right, you, you have a hypothesis, you get the data, you met, you know, you test, you measure. Were you all shocked? Uh, were people expecting that? I mean, what was the, the, the reaction? There's, there, there's a bell curve. So I, I, I wasn't shocked. I was just excited to have the data so that I could, Go go and um, and make the case, um, but the, but you know there was a bell curve. There was there was one segment that that was testing the hypothesis. There's another segment that it validated the assumptions. But it you know it's like any question that you know, what also was revealed was that not surprising those who had been not on financial aid while they were students were giving twice as much as those that were on financial aid, which you would expect because they, they were not on financial as a student. But coming post-graduation, that continued. So now we have to ask questions of why. Is that an outcomes question? Is that a, 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 a impact question? Is that a storytelling? Is that how, how we're building relationships? And so that's the, the next question that, that, that we're, we're digging into. You know, for, for me, the, the, the best practices that will become the next practices are around how are we shifting our, our messaging, our stories in an authentic way to our community? Um, how are we shifting who is telling the stories, how we're telling the stories, who are, who are we celebrating in our stories in an in authentic way to, to, with our communities um, it, it, as, we, as, we, as we move forward as an industry? Yeah, I think, you know, we think a lot about, is it a marketing challenge? Is it a sales challenge? Is it a customer success and renewal challenge? You know, what are the real, um, because inherently, you've got like, unlike other organizations that oftentimes are starting with cold leads who've never heard of the company or never heard of the industry or the product, you've got this unbelievable common um, foundation that is the college experience. Um, so where's the gap? Where's the break in the funnel? Is it the marketing and storytelling? Is it the sales? Is it the stewardship post the sale, if you will, you know, post donation? Um, and then how do you start really identifying data and trends and segments that then allow you to test interventions? So now you can see, can we take it from 
24% to back to 26%, right? We're not going to go from 24 to 50 overnight, um, but how can we really be laser focused on a specific cohort, um, maybe try some next practices and then see, does that, does that turn things around? Exactly. Now at the same time, I imagine like your peers, while that decline happened, your revenue is growing or that you saw continued growth in some cases on the major gift or principal gift side of things. So that kind of well, dollars up, donors down. Is that what you experienced or not as much? Not as much. And that's what's really, that's what's really interesting. And that's, an, that's another reason why I came to Pomona, because it's really unusual to find an institution of such excellence where there's an opportunity of such growth. Um, be, so we have seen over the last 30 years, um, the, the same dollars adjusted campaign uh, of 300 million. Um, so there, there's much more capacity in our community than, than uh, we, we have realized. So that's, that's as, we're, as we are uh, looking at our next campaign and going through our uh, feasibility study for our next campaign, that's what's really um, exciting to, 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 to look at and reimagine how we are connecting with our community. I would love to just get your perspective on next practices around the campaign um, coming out of COVID, does it end up looking different than you might've anticipated pre-campaign or is it more, okay, now this is almost over. Let's get back to the plan that was maybe in flight pre-COVID or is it too early to say? Well, I would say that my, my approach was very similar to, um, 9-11, it was very similar to 2007, 2008. Um, it was very, and it was very similar to COVID. Um, these, these are moments when you double down. You, you double down in your relationships and you double down, you accelerate your planning because you want to be best positioned for when the ride out comes on the, on the, on the, on the macroeconomic side. We, we, we will be having a coming out of this recession. And it's been, it's been an interesting recession, right? We haven't, we, we've seen it in some segments, not all, and it was much shorter than, than we anticipated, but we're gonna, we're gonna see, we're expecting to see uh, an, an even higher accelerant uh, uh, coming out, and, and the, and the uh, federal government has played a big part uh, in, in in helping to, to shorten that path. But you know, it actually in, in well, lot I mean, say you're in California. There has been a record IPO market. There's been record growth in the crypto space. There's been real estate growth, there's been public markets growth, private markets growth. So the top 10% has done incredibly well at a time when a light has been shined on inequality and the need. So I actually share your, I think, optimism here that this should be too. We've got more acute need than ever before. We've been able to see how education broadly can help accelerate solutions to big problems, vaccines, you name it, public health, social justice. Um, and people at the top are doing really well. So how do we come out of this and really play offense and be aggressive philanthropically um, as we see other markets rebounding quickly? Yeah, well, I, th I think part of that is timing, right? To ensure that 
you when we look at those organizations that were that were coming out of 2007 2008 those who were most successful were those that started and launched their campaigns either in that moment or shortly after those who waited three four or five years later were flat-footed and then were were playing catch-up and then hit hit the next downturn so a lot of it is timing and being positioned to hit um what coming out of this um so that so, so that that's a, that's a part of it you know and another big piece of it i think is ensuring that you you are relevant and adjusting to to our community now um this this has been such a moment of disruption and um, pain for so much of our community and to ensure that 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 we as institutions we as leaders are having a a clear voice and a clear understanding of the 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 impact that it's having on all of our, our communities and have real solutions um, to as it, from an institution and personally um, for to, to move forward um, for all part all parts of our communities uh, the, the, I think this is it's it, it's it's always been an ongoing area of growth for us um, and, it, and it, it continues to be now uh, and for and for those for us to be successful um, we'll, that will only it's a, it's even further in, in stark relief. You started your career in the arts. We hear a lot about the art and science of fundraising and you've now been pursuing an MBA on the side because why not right. Um, <laughs> So you've done an executive MBA program. We might have listeners who've thought about that or have considered, hey, maybe I'd like to do an MBA, but is it applicable to the world of fundraising? What's your quick read? Obviously, which MBA and what your goals are, all of that's going to be somewhat personal. But, but in your world, when you think about the before and after, as I believe you're either concluding or will soon conclude the, um, the MBA program, what's your take on that. I know it's not easy to juggle that on top of everything else that's going on. Uh, no, it's not easy. I mean, it's definitely, it's definitely an investment of time and you, you need support. You need support of your, your, your family and loved ones and you, um, and you need support of your, your team and, and certainly your boss. Um, so all, all of those I'm, I'm very grateful for. Um, and these are personal decisions, and and you, you should only go into it if it's something that that you're you're really excited by. You know, I think, I, and I looked at a lot of different programs, I, um, degrees. I I think specifically for the MBA and fundraising, you know, part of the, part of what I have found so interesting is in these roles, and we are talking to leaders in all different industries. We, we are talking to the, the leading thinkers in all different industries. And to be able to have this type of training and this type of business training to, to is, I think, a very powerful tool as you are inter having those deep conversations with these leaders to really understand 
the life cycle of a company to really understand what it means to have to do the capital raise for the IPO to 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 understand the mechanics of the the their their resourcing and their and their and their life. Um, so that's that's a piece of it. Um, I think it's it's you know there's also a whole portion of some of these programs where it's not directly applicable. I mean, I'm I'm doing a supply a global supply chain management class right now. Is that directly applicable to the work that I'm doing? No, but you know what what's been really interesting stepping into my first seat as a VP, you're sitting in a lot of executive staff meetings with you know around the table and you're talking about the widest range of issues across the institution. So this level of training, actually, you, you'd be surprised when it, it does come up and, it's, and, and it, yeah. it's, it's very helpful. And that global supply chain management has actually came in handy in the last, last two weeks as we were. I love it. I mean, I think it's fair to say, you know, fundraising, it's, a, it's very much a, a generalist work, right? I mean, you've got to go a mile wide and an inch deep. And I think that's where an MBA is a strong general um, program where you can get exposure to a lot of things. I have to ask, favorite course you've taken so far? Oh, I can't phrase it this way. Um, most relevant course you've taken so far, and maybe you already hinted at it, but like least relevant or something that you never otherwise could have imagined uh, studying. So, you know, the 20 year old in me, if I were to go back in time, could never have imagined that I would have enjoyed the finance course that I that I just completed. Um, the 20 year old in me that struggled through macroeconomics could never have imagined that I so deeply enjoyed the corporate finance course that 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 I that I just wrapped up two weeks ago. Um, my my favorite course by far are the leadership courses, um, the strategic strategic leadership, and to, to really dig deep, not only into the, the personal growth and the uh, personal awareness and the tools that they're providing, but also to um, think more strategically about how to change, how, how to be an agent of change around culture. A lot of the work that we're doing uh, that we all do is is supporting our president, supporting our institution, and and supporting the future of those institutions. And a, a lot of that has to do with change. So that strategic thinking around how to be intentional on change it, it has been really really interesting. Can I ask if you took a negotiation course? Uh, I have not yet, although we did have a hostage negotiator from the LAPD in a couple of weeks ago, and that was very informative. I, I wonder, it'll be fun to reconnect. I, I, I loved the negotiation course that I took in business school, but I'm always fascinated about uh, the intersection of philanthropy and negotiation, because I don't think we talk enough about the negotiate, like the fact that securing a gift is a negotiation. Um, and from uh, a, a um, to the point of a walk away where there's no gift, which isn't often talked about, but happens way more frequently than we acknowledge in this space to, I got the gift, but maybe I left a million dollars on the table to, I started here and we 
we're able to 10x the gift. And like, I just, I don't know, I, I feel like that's where the art and science intersection is. I, I just still have so much to learn. But I don't know if you have anything that comes to mind when you think about the fact, you know, the negotiation or the art of negotiation with with donors. Yeah, it's such a great question because I think that, you know, there's the, the, the biggest takeaway for me is don't assume. Oftentimes we go in with these assumptions around where the interests are, what the potential gift size is, how the gift will be structured. And, and, and I'm always surprised um, in all of those, those, those areas where, and every time I go in with some level of assumption, inevitably it's, it, it, it's, it's invalidated because it, it, until you ask those deep questions and build the relationship and continue asking the questions as you're moving through, you, you don't really know. Um, and, and part of that, neg that negotiation is, is, is build, building the, the potential of the gift together you know, thinking about the principal gifts and the transformational gift, you know, dreaming side by side together um, so that you can then dream of the potential impact together and then asking those, those questions of and unlocking the potential of their, their gift together. Um, and then when it comes to negotiations, you know, ensuring that you um, don't say yes too quickly and you don't accept no too quickly. Well said. Well, I want to be conscious of time, but I have to ask from clarinets to business school, music fundraising, education fundraising, and motorcycles on the side. I mean, what was the catalyst to get uh, into? Uh, and and what is, is the expression uh, when you're a Ducati enthusiast? I don't want to say it wrong. So, what do you call yourself? A Ducatista. <laughs> a Ducatista. Ducatista. I want to. I do Catista. I wanted to pronounce it correctly, so thank you. Yeah, you're welcome. So, how does one become a Ducatista on the journey? Yeah. Um, you know, I always wanted to ride, and kind of like your your mom as well. After you burned your leg, you know, my, when I was a teenager, my mom was definitely put the kibosh on it. Um, so, when I was in my my late twenties, early thirties, I I thought. I'm just going to jump in. And, and I, I honestly didn't know if I was going to enjoy it, but I ended up loving it and love, loving speed, loving the, the Ducatis, um, and, you know, getting on the street, uh, getting on the track. Um, also in the last couple of years, uh, getting on the dirt. Thankfully, my husband also enjoys this path as well. So we, we share it. And it's, it's, it's one of those, everybody has different places where they, find the escape. And for me, being on a bike is a very quiet and meditative and relaxing space to be. And it's one of the few places where all the white noise disappears and you can just completely focus and, and have fun. So that's it. And it's, and it's, and it's a community. I can't imagine many better hobbies to have had over the last 12 months than that one, uh, when you think about what you can do in a global pandemic in California, 
uh, riding the bike had to rank pretty high up there. It's pretty high up there. And, you know, Claremont, um, where Pomona is, is located, is right at the foot of Mount Baldy. So we, we were up and down Mount Baldy within, you know, 40 minutes, which was a, a real great escape and socially distanced escape. Um, Love it. Year. You referenced the tracks. So I think I'm allowed to ask this, but what's the fastest you've driven the bike? And then second, what's the most memorable ride you've ever been on? So you can ask it because it's on the track, although I, 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 I won't tell you how fast I've gone on I, the street. <laughs> I won't ask. I won't ask. You went there, not me. But now I'm kind of curious. So it's up to you. <laughs> no, I, on the track, it's about a buck 80 um, uh, down, down the street. The, you know, it's easy to go fast on these bikes. The hard part is braking for turn one and making sure you make it through turn, turn one. Um, but it's, it's easy to get the speed up. It's, it's actually get, getting around turn one. Um, the most memorable ride, um, let's see, there's, I mean, there's so many, I think it's probably, uh, it, it, right now our favorite, the favorite place to be is, um, on the dirt and there's, there's a beautiful park called Borregos. Um, it's Acatillo Wells, and it's it's south of um, Palm Springs, and it's an it's a it's an OHV um, uh, park, and it's near Borrego Springs. And it it basically, if you've ever seen, um, uh, oh, what's the name of that 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 film? Um, oh it's like Blade Runner where, you know, it's like, like, it looks like a, a moonscape. That's essentially what it is. And it's like ATVs and bikes and that, and that's what it looks like. And you, it's just free to, to be out. So that, that's probably the, 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 the most fun because you, it's, you're just exploring and it's, it's, it's open. It's, it's less about the speed and it's more about the exploring on, on those rides. Have you ever gone on a ride with donors? Do we have donors that are motorcycle enthusiasts where this uh, there's been an intersection or not yet? Uh, not yet, although I have had a number of, of donors asked to get on the back of my bike, um, but I but I have not done that yet. <laughs> well, if that happens, please take a selfie and we'll make sure to feature that on the blog. Um, this has been such a fun conversation. I'd love to keep going. I know we're on time here, but I have to ask uh, two two final questions. One, if people want to, one, are you hiring or, or do you envision yourselves hiring and Two, if uh, folks who are listening want to learn more about that or, or connect with you, what's the best way to do so? Thank you so much for asking that question. We are building our team, getting ready for the campaign. We're absolutely hiring. We're hiring in our advancement services as well as in our frontline fundraisers particularly. Um, so an AVP for advancement operations, um, and they'll be hiring within, within the team, director of major gifts, director of leadership and reunion giving, major gift officers. So we, we're building out the team and we're, we're, uh, we, we're really excited. So if, you, if you're interested, please reach out. Uh, we're, we're also partnering with Aspen Leadership Group uh, for our recruitment so that so you can reach out in both ways. Love it. And, and LinkedIn, okay, if people want to reach out directly? Yeah, Maria? absolutely. Yeah. Well, I cannot thank you enough for sharing um, your journey with our audience. And for all of you listening, if you want to talk music, motorcycles, global supply chain, corporate finance, or fundraising, please reach out to Maria. Let her know that you heard uh, this episode. And I just uh, wish you the absolute best uh, as you establish next practices at Pomona. Uh, and it's really been fun getting to know you. To you as well. Thank you so much for the invitation. I really have enjoyed this conversation. 
really fun. Be well. Take care, Maria. You Cheers. too. Take care. Bye-bye.